to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hey folks, uh, my name's Roger, I'm one of the ministers here. It would be great if you could just ferret around for a Bible. We're going to be looking at uh, that Bible reading from 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, throughout January, we're looking in our sermons on Sunday nights uh, at this idea of conversations with God that shape us. Uh, I said last week as I preached that you might remember with great sadness being in year 9. Uh, yes, it was terrible. Uh, and the people you hung around with, you started to speak like them for good or for ill. Uh, it's you know, when boys get a really good handle on swearing is year nine, pretty much. Uh, tonight, as we look at 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, uh, we're hearing a story and a prayer. The story is about Hannah. And the prayer is the prayer she prays after she's conceived and given birth to her baby boy, Samuel. Uh, This is a story that's close to my heart um, because uh, for years my wife Leah and I uh, longed to have children but couldn't. Uh, I was working as a primary school teacher, Leah was working as an editor for a boring legal company and uh, we came from families that unsurprisingly both had children, us in fact. Um, had been no troubles with reproduction in either of our families. Just squirm if it's getting squirmy for you. Um, uh, but we'd been married for five or six years. My brother and his wife accidentally got pregnant and had a baby. Thanks very little. Uh, and we longed for this thing which we knew was good. God loves children. Uh, we thought, is there something that we've done? that has somehow failed to secure us this good thing from God. Uh, And it got to the stage where we would avoid going to places. Uh, We would avoid going to kids' birthday parties because it was too upsetting. Uh, Leah got to the point one day where she was on a bus uh, with a woman who had a little baby and the baby was kind of screaming and stuff and she was thinking to herself, you can't look after that baby. I deserve that baby. And when you don't get what your heart desires from the Lord, the God that you know loves you, you can start to ask all sorts of questions. Is God really good? Is there something that I've failed to do to earn God's approval? Is there some prayer that I need to pray in a specific way? To get God to give me this good thing. Now, people's fertility and infertility stories end in many different ways. I have friends who've uh, remained childless. I have friends who've adopted because they've given up trying. We went down an IVF route and we have three lovely children. Uh, You should meet them, they're fun. Um, One of them's cuter than the other two though. Um, Uh, But this story that we're about to read of Hannah is uh, 
is poignant because she comes to God in her bitterness and grief. And can I just start by challenging you to be like that? Uh, Whether you're a person who uh, calls themselves a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're a person who's uh, considering God but upset with him, there's a tendency to pull back from approaching God if you think he's upset at you or if you think for some reason you can't approach him. But let's look at Hannah and her situation. The readings, 1 Samuel 1. Uh, What we're going to do is look at the story in brief and then at the prayer and see what we learn about the character of God and what to pray. The character of God and what to pray. But first, the story. Come with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's page 262. 262. The opening verses, well, the opening verse uh, is one of those readings from the Old Testament that you pray you're not rostered on for Bible reading for. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. And we are all none the wiser as to why Samuel is starting like this. Let me help you. These guys are from a priestly family. Uh, If you want to fast forward through the Bible up to this point, Genesis, God made everything. He rules it. It's good. In fact, it's very good. And the people he put in it, he loves and has a plan for that they'd fulfill his plan for the earth to grow and flourish and be in relationship with him, Adam and Eve. He picks a guy, Abram, and says to him, I'm going to pick you and work my good plan through you. Big promises to give him a land, descendants, blessing so that he'll bless the world. Genesis chapter 12. The rest of Genesis, 12 to 50, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, known as Israel, and Joseph, you know, Prince of Egypt. Uh, that's up to Genesis 50. God's family grows like he promised it would, even though it's pretty dodgy to start with and there's all sorts of infertility issues. Exodus, remember Exodus, exit, uh, which is our next sermon series, by the way. It's going to be a cracker. The book of Exodus is God saving his people out of slavery to know him and serve him in freedom in the land he's prepared for them. Exodus. Uh, and then uh, the books that follow, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, flesh out what it means to live as God's people in this new land he's given them. The book of Judges, uh, which is just a couple of pages back from 1 Samuel, ends with this. Judges is a kind of series, a cycle of tales where God's people listen to the people he sends, the judge. They listen for a bit and obey and things go well. Then they kind of forget God, sin, he judges them. Things go pear-shaped until another judge arrives and the same cycle repeats itself through Judges. And the last verse of Judges says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did as he saw fit. That's meant to be an indictment on God's people. That when we do what we want, God is not pleased and his people do not flourish as he has planned. And so, uh, after a little excerpt, the book of Ruth, which by the way is fantastic because it shows that even though God's people are on the whole cactus and out of relationship with him, there's a ray of hope. Boaz, yes, the faithful one. And we get to 1 Samuel chapter 1. These guys with all the Bible names are from a priestly line. And so the book of Samuel is going to have something to do with the temple where God dwells and where his people meet with him. 
We don't meet Samuel just yet. The problem in the story is in verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. Every good story has something that goes wrong at the start that must be fixed by the end. Verse 2, look at it. It's a big love problem. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. Dum, dum, dum. Does the Bible support polygamy? No, it reports polygamy and it reports that almost every time it happens, it's disastrous. Just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean that God approves of it or has it planned for his people, which I think is a good idea because every time you have, I mean, being married to one person is hard enough with two sinful people trying to care for each other and prosper do well and love each other. When you add an extra relationship into that, it just gets nasty. And look at the particular nastiness that's prevalent in this relationship. One was called Hannah. you meant to go, yay! And one was called Peninnah. Boo! Uh, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, This good guy, Elkanah, the husband, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice, as he should have, as a good Jewish, Israelite man of God. He did what he should. He went to Shiloh, where the temple was, where the sons of Eli were priests. Whenever the day came, I'm in verse 4, for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give. And you've got to picture the two wives standing on either side of him, each with their families. He would give portions of the meat to be sacrificed to his wife, Peninnah, boo, and her children. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Two things, one trivial, one important. The trivial one, notice that he loves his wife, Hannah. In fact, I think she's his favourite. One of the reasons polygamy is disastrous is because it's inevitable to have favourites. But secondly, and quite disturbingly, notice that the Lord had closed her womb. Did you see that in verse 5? The Lord had closed her womb. It's tempting for us when we read bits like this in the Bible to think she was unable to have children and the Lord knew about it. But that's not what it says. We'll talk more about this later, but for now, realize that in the world where God is sovereign, there is nothing out of his control. I'll say that again. In the world where God is sovereign, there is nothing outside of his control. And Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 will reflect this. There's a sense, we don't know why, But it's true that she doesn't have children because that is God's will for her at the moment. Verse 6. The outcome of polygamy in this case. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. A nasty piece of work. Peninnah. Don't call your daughter Peninnah. Bad indication. This went on, verse 7, year after year. Each time they went up to the place, you can imagine the journey up to the temple. Peninnah getting ready to taunt Hannah. Hannah dreading every step of the journey. Her rival would provoke her till she wept and would not eat. Now Elkanah, 
Nice guy by all accounts so far in the story. Her husband would say, I'm in verse 8, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Maybe not the clueiest questions to be asking. I think he's probably worked it out. And in a moment of well-intentioned but kind of bumbling husbandry, Elkanah says, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? You're like, dude, I know where you're coming from. Yes, husbands and wives, it's good to love each other, but you're an idiot. Don't say that to your wife. Because the answer is no. The desire for children is different for the desire for a husband or wife. Uh, It's perfectly possible for a wife to love her husband and to be loved by him and still desire greatly for that which she does not have. The story at this point is bad for Hannah. But as you expect, as we head towards the happy ending or at least an ending, Uh, we see what came. And uh, thanks for reading Tim earlier. You heard uh, Hannah come to the temple. It's in verse 9. Once they'd finished eating and drinking, Hannah stood up. Eli the priest was doing what he should have done, sitting uh, at the door of the temple. And look at the description of Hannah's prayer in verse 10. This is what I talked about at the start. I wonder if this has ever characterized your prayer. Have a look at verse 10. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. Have you been there? So I can pretty much guarantee if you keep living in this broken world, a world shaped by sin and mourning and death and grief and sorrow, if you haven't come to this point yet, you will. Feel free to call when you get there. In Bitterness, Hannah weeps and prays to the Lord. It's a reminder to us, this is a good reminder from God's word, that we can come to God in our bitterness. We can come to God in our weeping and he loves to hear us because he is our father. Hannah makes a vow saying, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate him to you. You can have him for your service. Eli, who hears the prayer, responds by asking her if she's drunk. There's a little play on words here about things that are poured out. Have a look at verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Pretty good advice from the priest. If you're drunk at church, stop drinking. But she says, verse 15, not so, my Lord. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I haven't been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. In case you didn't hear it before, Hannah is praying to the Lord in her anguish and grief. We live in a society at the moment where we are often told, if you doubt, 
Step back and examine your faith from a distance. No. If you doubt the goodness of God, step forward and challenge God with your doubt. Step forward in prayer and pour out your heart to him because he already knows what you're thinking. And he's trustworthy and examinable and testable and good. Even if it doesn't feel like it some of the time. Out of my great anguish and grief, she prays. And Eli's answer provoked in her a response that I did not expect. Eli's answer, if you read it in verse 17, it's kind of innocuous. It's a bit like if you grew up in an Anglican church, the bit the priest says at the end. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Uh, And Eli answers, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. Kind of an innocuous looking sentence. But look at the response it provokes in her. She realizes that Eli speaks on behalf of God. Eli is speaking as a priest in the temple on behalf of God. That's what God's prophetic people were meant to do. The priests were meant to speak to the people on behalf of God. Look at the response in verse 18. May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Not because she ate. Although eating can make you happy. It's not a consolation for grief, at least not in the long term. Her face is no longer downcast because Eli has said your prayer will be answered. Hannah's taken God at his word. She's taken God at his word through the mouth of Eli. It's one of the ways that you consider what it means to follow God, to take him at his word. That when he says, follow me, I will provide for you and give you life to the full. You take him at his word. What it means to be a Christian. And her behaviour in the verses to follow, verse 19 and following, shows that she did actually believe this. Early the next morning they rose, they did what they came to do, worship before the Lord. And I imagine that Penn and I were still going, <laughs> no children, <laughs> look at my lot. But they go back to their home and Elkanah, and this is Bible talk for sex, Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because it means God hears. Now, I just want to draw your attention to one thing there in verse 19. This is something we'll talk more about when we look at Exodus. But it says that the Lord remembered her. What do you think that means? Don't answer out loud. What do you think it means for God to remember Hannah, what does it mean for the Lord to remember you or me? I don't think it's God having a seniors moment where he's like, oh, that person I created, uh, Hannah. No. It's not that God winds up his universe and lets it tick away and bad things happen and then he kind of ducks in and is suddenly sovereign for a little bit and then walks away again. No, no, when it says that the Lord remembers a person or a people, because this is the same phrase used of God remembering his whole people of Israel in Egypt when they're slaves, that means that God remembers his faithfulness to his people. He remembers that he's promised to bless his people. 
that he's promised to do what's good for them and that the time has come for that to be fulfilled. It's very frustrating being a creature, I find, that I'm not actually in control of all the things. Is that your experience of living in this world? I just want to be in control of all the things that affect my life. It would make dressing very much less complicated. I would know what the weather was doing. It would make engaging with the other people in the world much easier because I I could predict and even control what they would do. One of the things that praying reminds us is that we are creatures, not the creator. And when Hannah prays, the Lord remembers her. He remembers his promises. He remembers who he is. His character is to remember his people and have mercy on them. And that's the story of the prayer in verse 2, in chapter 2. So as we turn to chapter 2, we're going to look at what Hannah actually prays. The second half of chapter 1, you notice I conveniently skipped over. Essentially, she has the baby and does what she said she would do. She takes him to the temple after he's weaned and says, he can live in the temple. Now, that seems a bit of a strange thing to us, but it's what she promised and he's well cared for and she goes and visits him and makes him nice stuff. Um, And if you've got questions about it, let's chat later. Chapter 2, the prayer of Hannah. What does this prayer teach us? I think it teaches us uh, a couple of things. Firstly... Prayer is less about us than we often think. Prayer is less about us than we often think. Uh, And secondly, that imperfect people can pray. Imperfect people can pray. Have a look at the way that Hannah starts praying. I don't think she's particularly nice about it. I didn't expect this when I read this prayer. Uh, Hannah, chapter 2, verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord. All good so far. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. That's like a sign of victory. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Hang on a second. That doesn't seem right. That's not what I'd teach my kids. Uh, We've been learning you know in our house lately. And there's been a lot of boasting going on from the victors. (laughs) Boasting over your enemies. Boasting over those you've been victorious over. In this case, Hannah, Saint Peniah. Got a child now. Not the unloved one anymore. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Is this a moment of just heartfelt overflow of relief from years of emptiness? I think the last line of verse 1 puts it in a little bit more perspective. Hannah boasts over her enemies because she delights in God's deliverance. Hannah delights in the deliverance that she's received from God. You see, it's easy to think that when our prayers get answered, it was because we did something good to deserve it. But Hannah's boasting, her glee, her delight that the one who taunted her has been put to shame is because of, how is it put in the last line there of verse 1? Because of your deliverance, she prays to God. And the rest of the prayer 
is not actually so much about Hannah or her beautiful boy, Samuel. It's about the one who has delivered her. Look at all the things we see about the character of God in this prayer. Verse 2. There's no one holy like the Lord. This prayer, in fact, is just a list of characteristics of the Lord. Verse 2. There's no one holy like the Lord. Do you remember Exodus? Samuel would have heard the story where Moses saw the bush burning up and God spoke to him from the fire that wasn't consuming the bush. Take your sandals off because this ground is holy ground. God is pure and sinless and perfect and you can't come into his presence as you are. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you, no rock like our God. God is like a rock, not because he doesn't speak, but because he's firm and steadfast and trustworthy. Jesus will say the same thing. Build your house on the rock. Hannah keeps praying in verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. It's almost like she's praying so that Peninnah can hear. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. Did he grab those two things? The Lord is a God who knows. As you sit here tonight, the Lord who made you and who sustained you knows you. He's known you from the moment you were brought into existence. He knows your heart. He knows your history. And the second half of the verse is not only that he's a God who knows, but by him deeds are weighed. Have you seen the scales of justice on pretty much any shield that sits near a court? This is the sign of judgment, that deeds are weighed. And in the face of a holy God, I am found wanting. And my sin deems me unacceptable to God and worthy of being excluded from his presence. In fact, of being punished for my disregard for him. The Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The next few verses, 4, 5, 6, 7 and 8 are a series of little comparisons that I think sound remarkably like Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about how human strength is made to look weak and those who seem weak in the eyes of the world are lifted up by this God. What's God like? The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. Does that sound like a parable you know? But those who are hungry hunger no more. Remind you of Jesus feeding people? She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust 
and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Now, this is a Lord who doesn't judge by appearances, who doesn't reward wealth and success. In fact, quite the opposite. The God of the Bible, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, loves the humble. He comes to those who are in need. Is that you? Notice, by the way, verses 6 and 7, the Lord brings death and makes alive. It's the second time in this passage that we've recognised that uh, bad things in the world, like death, are part of God's sovereign plan. The Lord brings death. Uh, this week, my wife buried her grandma, her last remaining grandparent, and it was, it's been a really sad week. I long for the time when we won't have to go through this. I know that if the world continues as it is, I will bury both my parents if all things continue as we expect. And I, I don't look forward to that. I've been thinking about it this week. I would love there to be no death in this world. Verse 6 says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. There's part of the hint in this passage that this is not the end of the story of the Bible. We'll see more in a minute. In verse 10, as Hannah winds up her prayers, we see two things. That those who stand in opposition to God will face him, but that there is a ray of hope. See verse 10? Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He'll thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. It seems a long way for praying for a child, doesn't it? Has she just got carried away? Is this some kind of hyperbole? Now what Hannah's done in her grief and in her joy is stepped back and seen the character of God. That he is holy. That he is powerful. That he alone brings death and life. That he will judge the world. Not only will he bring judgment, but look what the end of verse 10 says. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. His anointed is the one he chooses to be king. In the book of Samuel, people get anointed. In fact, Samuel will grow up to be a judge who anoints Israel's greatest king. King David, the king from whom all kings in Israel will be judged against. The greatest king. People came to him from all over the world. He was rich. He had thousands of wives. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But even David is not the final point of this little ray of hope. See, the Lord's anointed is King Jesus. Now, we've been singing Christmas carols in December, if you can remember back that far. O little town of Bethlehem, once in royal David's city. See, David's city was the place where the king in David's line, the Lord Jesus, came. So the Lord Jesus is God's anointed king, the one who will be just like this. He has this character of knowing and ruling and judging 
and having mercy. Is this the Jesus that you know? Uh, Tonight, as we've looked at the little story of Hannah and her prayer, I hope that you've been challenged to pray in a different way. To think about coming to God, whatever your situation, even in grief and tears. About calling on God to be the God he claims to be. Holy, powerful, just and merciful. I'm going to pray now uh, and then we'll have a chance to reflect. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us uh, in your word. We thank you uh, for Hannah and the reminder she is to us of what it's like living in a broken world and calling on you. Our Lord, we ask that you would teach us to pray, uh, that you'd teach us to know who you are and to come before you in every circumstance. Uh, We pray for one another, that you might help us to know you more and more, day by day and week by week, Uh, that we might be people uh, who are lights shining in this dark world. Father, we know that we don't know what's best for ourselves, and so we thank you that you're a good father. We thank you that you've given us your son, who knows what it is to cry out to you in prayer. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who lived and died and rose for us. And we thank you that we can pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.